You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, Lots going on out there. The House passed the Equality Act and Joe Biden's stimulus bill, which is good. The Senate has not yet gotten rid of the filibuster, which is bad. Donald Trump stood in front of a microphone for two hours at Sea Crack, which is the worst. You know, I've been on Team Cholesterol since 2015, and I got to say, Cholesterol, you have let us down and continue to let us down. The other big sex news, new Gallup poll found that 5.6% of Americans now identify as LGB or T. That's up from 4.5% in 2017 and 3.5% in 2012. While the numbers of people who identify as lesbian or gay or trans stayed pretty consistent, summarized but consistent, the number of people who identify as bi has risen the fastest. Fully 16% of Gen Z identify as bi. Some people, alarmed by these new numbers, particularly the number of bisexual folks with opposite sex partners who are out now, but with less stigma attached to identifying as queer, more people who previously rounded themselves down to straight are going to feel comfortable rounding themselves up to queer, and I think that's great. I'd also like to think maybe our conversations on this show have played some small role in these numbers. We've worked hard to make the queer community feel a little bit more welcoming for bisexual but heteroromantic people, and to make bisexual but heteroromantic people feel like their brand of bisexuality is authentically bi, or valid, as the kids said until they heard me start saying it, at which point they promptly stopped. Also, the actor Skeet Ulrich, who is 51, has been accused on Twitter of being a pedophile, which is insane. Ulrich is dating a much younger woman. Ulrich, 51, is dating the actress Lucy Hale. She's 20 years younger than he is, which makes her 31 fucking years old and not a child, but a fully grown-ass adult woman who's free to pick whatever dick she wants to sit on. And anyone out there saying Skeet Ulrich is a predator or a pedophile is an asshole or a lunatic. Or both. All right. Full disclosure, I'm not in the office today, so I can't do an extended rant about any of that. So we're going to open today's show with a short conversation, a correction, in fact. For those of you who know me, it'll come as no surprise that I missed the memo on a seminal punk band out of Texas from the early 80s. DJ Moose, the Moose, is here to explain to me what I got wrong and what I need to know about the dicks. Recently on the show, I was responding to someone who said the ubiquity of dicks, a phrase I used on the podcast, uh, would be a great name for a band. And I predicted like the doors to perception, the ubiquity of dicks would eventually be shrunk down to just the dicks like the doors became the doors. And I said, maybe there should be a band called the dicks. And I heard from people that there is joining me to fill me in on who the dicks were, or who the dicks are. Moose the DJ. Hey, Moose, how are you? Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. Okay, so I screwed up. I put my foot in my mouth. Not only is there a band already called The Dicks, but they are a queer punk band. Do you want to give us your best minute and a half download on The Dicks? Well, yeah. You know, those of us of a certain age, preferably over 50, uh, queer core and queer punk were pretty important to, especially sort of Midwest outcasts like me who were looking for something other than uh, dance music, looking for a different kind of gay role model in your teens. Uh, and dicks were out of Austin, uh, which, as you know, everybody in Austin will tell you, they like to 
be different. They like to be a little weird. So they were really the first gay punk rock band. And when I say gay, the lead singer was out. The rest of the band, as far as I know, is not gay. But their music was all super queer. And the lead singer, Gary Floyd, who's still around today and still has an amazing voice, uh, would go out on these stages in Texas in full divine drag. Uh, he's a he's a very big boy, still a big bear, and he would go out there in full divine drag and uh, do things like put pudding in his pants and then smear them on people's faces and tell them it was poop. Okay, but how was the music? Now, well, I will say this: the first they only had really a couple of proper albums. The first one is very punk. It's very uh, do it yourself. It's very grungy lo-fi. It has great songs of it like Rich Daddy, Doctor Daddy, uh, Off Duty Sailor, and Shit on Me. For as just to name a few, uh, and then they went on for their next album. They moved to San Francisco, changed some members, and they became more straightforward rock. And I do recommend that second album quite a bit. And then they went. He went off and formed a couple other bands too. And when was this? You, you say they were a seminal queer punk band. What what era are we talking about here? What year did their first album come out? Well, they they first started recording in 1980, and that was that predates almost any almost most punk in the U.S. didn't start until around 79. Uh, you know, on record, they were the first queer core band before queer core was a thing in about 1985. So they were well, well ahead of the curve. So by the time they queer core was a thing with groups like Pansy Division, they had already broken up. Okay, so am I a bad gay for not knowing who the dicks are or were, or am I a typical gay for not knowing who the dicks are? <laughs> well, I would hate to use the word typical, but. <laughs> Uh, you know, being a DJ, I do, I, I'm around dance music an awful lot. And I would say surveying my friends who know music, I would only give that about the top five percentile of queers would actually know who dicks were, especially outside of Texas. All right. I mean, you're, and, you're okay. Dan. And, and you're they fine. deserve some credit to like get up on a stage in Texas to play random clubs mm -hmm. in Texas as a band with a openly gay queer lead singer that took balls, putting smeared balls. Yeah, right, right. You know, after you know, during their peak, they actually went on an anti-Reagan tour uh, with four other bands that were strictly meant to piss Ronald Reagan off. So you thought you would enjoy that. That's amazing. I, I missed that tour, of course, because uh, I only go to see musicals. I never go to see <laughs> punk bands or any bands at all because I am uh, a bad gay or a bad punk gay. I'm more of a musical theater homo, as everyone knows. So if anybody out there listening wants to know more about the Dicks, where can they find out more about the Dicks? Well, there's a, a, a pretty DIY documentary, but it's pretty good. Uh, it came out a few years ago. It's available for streaming. It's called The Dicks from Texas. Uh, if you Google it, you get a, three or four sources to, uh, to watch it. Uh, it's pretty great. Moose the DJ, thank you so much for jumping on the phone and filling me in about the Dicks. I needed some dick filling today. <laughs> Don't we all, Dan? Thank you. Okay, so anyone out there who may have started a band called The Dicks after hearing me say it was a good name for a band, I apologize. That name is taken. You're going to have to redesign all your merch. But the ubiquity of Dicks, that band name, still up for grabs. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, more guests, no ads when you subscribe to the Lovecast 
Dr. Stacy DeLynn joins us to answer a couple of questions. She's a physician who studies emerging evidence on COVID safety. We have her on this week to talk about dating once you've had your vaccine and also whether it's safe to let your poly sister babysit your kids. All that coming up on today's show. But before we get to it, we want to remind everybody that Nancy and I are hosting another Savage Love live stream March 13th with special guest writer and pro-dom Mistress Matisse. Go to savagelovecast.com slash events to get tickets to our next live stream March 13th now. And now, today's show. Hi, I am a girl in my early 20s, queer in Los Angeles. The last couple months I've been dating this girl and I really liked her and things were going really well. And a couple days ago, I found out that I found out from social media that she has a boyfriend. And this is really confusing to me because, you know, we talked about our past relationships and she said she talked about her ex-boyfriend and said she's not really into guys anymore and she just never said anything about it to me, which is strange. And, you know, I went went back to look at her Tinder profile and she did say that she was polyamorous, but she didn't say anything about being partnered. And I guess I'm just wondering, is this normal? Should I be expecting this in the dating scene? I just am confused as to where the line between cheating and polyamory is. And if this crosses it or if it's a gray area. And I guess I'm also wondering how I should proceed with her. I mean, I still like her. And if I'd known from the beginning that she was partnered, I don't think it would be an issue for me. But there is something about the secrecy that kind of gives me the ick a little bit. Is this normal? Well, I guess it depends on what the meaning of is is. In that sentence, uh, I don't think what you describe is normal or common, although it is understandable, and I'll get to that in a second. What is normal here is that people lie. This woman lied to you to get into your pants. It's not just men who'll do that. People, men and women, queer and straight, monogamous and non-monogamous, will sometimes lie to get what they want. There's a legal term for this, rape by deception, a situation in which the perpetrator obtains the victim's agreement to engage in sexual intercourse or other sex acts, but gains it by deception, such as false statements or actions. There is a debate about whether omissions amount to false statements or actions. She didn't tell you that she had a boyfriend. She said things that you would reasonably conclude meant that she wasn't seeing anyone else. Even though she identified as polyamorous on her dating profile, she said things that made it sound like she didn't have a boyfriend anymore. She, she stated that she didn't have a boyfriend. So she lied to you about her boyfriend to get into your pants. As upsetting as that is, I don't think you were raped. I don't think this is necessarily sexual assault. It's sex that you will probably always feel weird and unhappy about because you were deceived because this woman lied to you. And it adds insult to injury in that she didn't need to lie to you. If she'd just been honest with you about having a boyfriend and being poly, 
you still would have gone out with her. You still would have seen her. And this is where we get into why I can understand why she lied, which is not the same thing as approving of her telling you or any other women these lies. But you often hear by women with male partners complaining about being rejected by women that they want to sleep with or date because they have a male partner. And I think that they should just disclose the male partner and keep looking until they find a woman who wants to date them, either despite them having a male partner or in part because they have a male partner, a woman who's into that, a woman who might be polyamorous or bi with a boyfriend or husband of their own at home. And those are definitely options. But there seem to be a lot of folks out there, a lot of bi women out there who have male partners who get rejected once or twice, shot down once or twice on the dating apps or in the bars when we have bars again. And the lesson they take away from that kind of rejection and just a small taste of it is that they need to lie or they'll never get what they want. And the actual lesson is you need to keep asking for what you want until you find someone and being honest about who you are and what you've already got until you find somebody who who wants you either despite what you've already got or in part, and I think it's more optimal for it to be in part because of what you've already got. So I understand why she lied. I don't think it's okay that she lied. You have every right to be upset at this woman for lying to you, for obtaining your consent to being sexual through deceit. Whether or not you continue to see her is up to you. And I think that decision would really hinge on a conversation with her where you confront her about the lies she told you and why she told you those lies. It may be that she had no intention of getting involved with you, of ever seeing you again, that she told this lie and she instantly regretted it because she didn't know how to extricate herself from it and she continued to see you and she backed herself into this corner and kept lying. And I know people who've been in similar situations where someone told a lie at the start because they didn't think the relationship was going to go anywhere and they thought the lie was harmless, a harmless omission because it was just going to be a one-night stand or it was just a grinder hookup or whatever. And then it all blew up in their faces once they got more serious and involved with each other. And then the lie came out and it was not so much whatever had been lied about that was the problem, but that the lie had been told. And maybe that's where you fall, that you obviously don't have a problem with her having a boyfriend. You have a problem with her lying to you about having a boyfriend. If I were you, I would most likely end this relationship unless this woman told me something when I confronted her that led me to believe that she regretted it, the lie, as soon as she told it and is embarrassed and ashamed that the lie only came out when I stumbled over her social media profile and found out that she had a boyfriend. This is my hypothetical scenario, girlfriend, I'm dating a woman in this hypothetical. Doesn't often happen, but you know, anything's possible. Up to you, whether you continue to see her. If I were you, I would not continue to see her. In the future, when you're dating women, you can bring this experience to that new relationship. You can let somebody know, I've been lied to like this in the past, and I didn't like it. And if it had been disclosed at the start, it wouldn't have been a problem. But don't fucking lie to me about having a boyfriend. You can say that. Decreases your odds of finding yourself in this situation again, but doesn't eliminate them. Because what's normal here is that people lie. And just as understandable doesn't mean okay, normal doesn't mean all right. Hi, Dan. I'm a queer woman in my 30s, 
And I'm calling because I found out yesterday that my partner cheated on me. And um, for a little background, we've been together a little bit over a year. Shortly after we first started dating, I expressed that I would prefer to be in an open relationship. He was taken aback, not his preference, didn't feel comfortable with it, but he did say that he would be open to continue talking about it. So we talked about it a couple more times, but then, you know, the pandemic happened. And so that can has just continued to be kicked down the road um, and has not been a priority. Meanwhile, we've been trying to get pregnant for the past six months, and I have a traumatic history with pregnancy, and I really, really want to have a child. I've really wanted to have a child with him. And yeah, I just found out yesterday that he cheated on me from a friend. First, he denied it and lied about it, and eventually... He did admit what happened and he apologized. He did express that he wants to make this work. But I guess my question is like, how do you know when it's worth trying to make it work? Like I'm feeling all of the things that people feel when they've been cheated on. You know, I feel lied to. I feel humiliated. I feel deeply hurt. And I think those things are just magnified because... This happened during a pandemic, so, you know, it puts me even at more risk. It's happened while we're trying to get pregnant, which isn't, hasn't been easy. And it happened when he told me he didn't want to be in an open relationship. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm, I'm deeply hurt and I don't even know how to make sense of my feelings and I don't know how to decide whether to try and forgive him and make it work. I don't think that cheating is the worst thing a person can do. I do think that people deserve forgiveness. I can't make sense of any of it. And it feels unfair that I'm the one that has to make these decisions. My life today is very different from my life when I woke up yesterday. I don't want to make you feel worse than you clearly already feel. But listening to your call, I couldn't help but wonder what the... F you're doing trying to get pregnant by this guy that you've known for six months. You've been together for a year, but you say you've been trying to get pregnant with him, by him for six months. So six months into this relationship, you decided you wanted to scramble your DNA together with this guy's DNA forever. And I just don't think at six months you can really know a person that has clearly borne out in your situation. You didn't know him. Maybe he didn't know himself. And I get it. You're in your 30s. Your biological clock is ticking. And maybe you had a really good feeling about this guy. And maybe he has a really good game. And you felt like the impulse purchase of his DNA was the right thing. And it may have been and it may still be. I think a lot hinges on what kind of cheating was this? And what did he tell you about it besides finally admitting it and apologizing for it. What are the details? Details you don't share with us in your call and you didn't leave a number. We can't call you back. What were the circumstances? I do think that cheating is something that people can forgive, but there's a difference between sleeping with your sister on your wedding night and getting a hand job from a stranger on a business trip 30 years, 20 years, 10 years into a, a relationship or having a one-off with the personal trainer or whatever many years in that is 
instantly regret it. There are a lot of people out there who, when offered polyamory or an open relationship, reject the offer, don't want that because they want to be monogamous, even though they're not very good at being monogamous. Or they want their partner to be monogamous while they do whatever the fuck they want to do. They're fine sleeping with other people themselves. They just don't want to be with someone who has the same license that they've granted to themselves. Only extended conversations with this guy is going to reveal what his issue was and whether you can trust him going forward. It's not true once a cheater, always a cheater. It is true once a cheater, likelier to cheat than someone who has never cheated. I mean, obviously, and duh, that would be true, but there's research that bears that out. Not once a cheater, always a cheater. Once a cheater, likelier to cheat in the future than someone who has never cheated. You need to ask yourself, as you continue to contemplate scrambling your DNA together with this guy forever, what it would mean to be in a relationship with someone who may cheat on you again. What would it mean if he cheated on you when you had a six-month-old infant at home? What would it mean if he cheated on you again when you had a six-year-old child at home that you were taking care of? Are those blows that you could take in stride? Or can you leverage this crisis in your relationship to get what you wanted at the start of the relationship, which was ethical non-monogamy? He's given you non-ethical non-monogamy and you're having the crisis in your relationship because the non-monogamy was unethical, not because there was non-monogamy. You were down with non-monogamy. Your preferred relationship model would allow for some sex with other people. I can't read your partner's mind and you don't share much about his thought process, but it's sometimes the case that people before they've ever had an open relationship have it in their heads that their partner sleeping with somebody else, their partner will instantly bond with that other person, that emotions will get involved, feelings will get involved, they'll catch feelings, their partner will for someone else. And they just can't understand how someone could have sex without catching feelings. And then that person who has that hang up has sex with somebody else, doesn't catch feelings, and they suddenly get it. They suddenly understand. Maybe that's him. I don't know. You're going to have to do your screw diligence now and figure out where he's at. And you're going to have to weigh whatever it is he's telling you against his incentive to lie to you at this moment about what he was feeling, what he was doing and how he understands himself better now or non-monogamy better now. And it was early in the relationship. You guys have been together for a year and trying to get pregnant for six months, been together for just a year. Maybe he was slamming his hand down on the self-destruct button. Maybe he doesn't want to have a child. Maybe he doesn't want to be in this relationship. Or maybe he, again, I'm trying to read his mind. I don't know what was up with him, but maybe he was just out there thinking, well, before I finally and irrevocably commit to this relationship, I'm going to have my dumb springa. I'm going to have my cum springa and get my yayas out. Problem with yayas is they come right back. People who have it in their heads, you can get your yayas out before you commit, before you have kids. Yeah, those yayas, they don't go away. Doesn't mean they have to be acted on. Doesn't mean everyone succumbs to the desire to get further yayas out down the road after they've committed to just one person. But this bullshit people have in their heads, I can get it out of my system. No, 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 no. Always going to be a part of your system. People mistake the refractory period for yayas having been gotten out permanently and it ain't true. So 
you need to have an important convo with this man, potential father of your potential future children, about what the fuck he was thinking. And then you need to go away with that. Maybe talk with friends about it. Maybe talk with a therapist about it. And try to decide whether he's being honest with you now. Because he clearly wasn't being honest with you before. And then apply your best judgment. Doesn't mean you won't get cheated on in the future. People who are having kids with someone who's never cheated on them sometimes get cheated on in the future. Your odds that your partner will cheat on you again in the future, higher, according to the research, than someone whose partner never cheated on them. But you know him now. You know what he's capable of now. He knows what he's capable of now. I'm not telling you to break up with him. This is something a couple can definitely work through and get past and come to a better understanding about each other. But you're going to have to, I think, get back on birth control for a little bit and do some forensic accounting here to figure out whether or not you can stay with this guy, whether or not you can make it work. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old gay man from Chicago, Illinois. I'm here to talk about an experience that happened to me recently. I met my ex-boyfriend before the pandemic got worse, and things were great. We were both happy. Uh, We celebrated with each other over the holidays, and then something happened. We had our first argument, and he revealed to me a lot of things that bothered him about me, and he broke up with me without even giving me a chance to fix them. He asked for time and space. Two weeks later, I reached out to him and asked him how he was feeling, and then he blocked me. That is, This has never happened to me before in my life. I've never been blocked by an ex. I feel like I'm moving on, but the one thing holding me back is closure, accepting that this person is doing this and I'm just, and just not, and just doesn't want anything to do with me. And I just, I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm so upset about this still. And it's been a month since the breakup. I am getting help. I'm getting therapy and I'm talking to, I'm sticking around with my family and friends. I'm just really, really upset. And it's been really hard trying to figure out ways to accept this closure that I can't seem to find. So you called my show. That makes me suspect you might be a listener. Uh, that is correct. I'm a long-time listener. Okay, long-time long listener. Years. So you've heard everything I've ever had to say about closure, that sometimes closure, or I, I think closure always is something you give yourself, not something somebody else gives you, not something the other person gives you. It's a gift you give yourself. And you're doing everything else I tell people to do. You're leaning on friends. You're talking to uh, a shrink. You're getting help. You were dumped, and that sucks, and it hurts. And you should know all this if if you're a long-time listener, that I would say all this. So why do you think I'm calling? Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but I do appreciate it. (laughs) Well, I want to know what went down Um, during your first fight. Everything was great. You were seeing this guy for the better part of a year, if I've got my timeline straight. Is that right? um, It was actually actually just seven months. Okay. So that's slightly the better part of a year, just by a little bit. And everything was awesome and it was going really well. And then you had your first argument. And not only, you know, he said there were some things about you that he really had a problem with and he didn't give you a chance to address them, but then he blocked you. So that really means one of two things. Like you revealed something to him in those arguments that was, that made him rethink the person that he thought you were the whole time that he was seeing you and not only end the relationship, but also block you, which is, an added layer of like, all right, I need to get this person out of my life. They're toxic. So it either means that about you or it means he's childish, insecure, 
not in good working order, can't handle or process conflict, in which case you're well rid of him. And so I was just really curious which you thought it was. I think it might be the latter because um, any attempt that I've made has been just to make peace, uh, just to apologize. Um, we didn't necessarily things on a great note the night we broke up. So mm-hmm. for, and, and it wasn't any negative. There wasn't anything. It just was a little bit um, of a struggle. And I guess over the last few weeks, it's just been, well, before, like during that time, it was just, I reached out just to see if I can make peace. Like mm-hmm. to go back to that closure, and that's when he blocked me. So, so you you offered him closure in a sense, and he rejected your offer of closure, right? So, what was it, if I may, about you that he cited as something he had a problem with? I, I'm just curious. To be fair to him, um, well, I he told me that I struggled with negativity sometimes, and this happened during the pandemic. So we were both quarantined. Mm-hmm. Um, he, we were separate from each other. And, um, I think that space away from each other was just creating tension for both of us. Um, I had a family member in my house that had COVID. So I was just more stressed than usual. And I think I was just leaning on him heavily for support. And I think that was just, um, causing some tension between us. Okay. Well, I have your closure for you going forward maybe you leaned on him too much. Maybe he's someone who seven months into a relationship doesn't feel like a romantic partner should be someone uh, who's expecting a lot of support from him at seven months. Maybe you were drawing too much out of the bank. You know what I mean? In a relationship, you pay into a bank with, you know, good times and tender times and meals and hanging out and sex. And then you earn interest. You earn someone's love, support, attention, their willingness to drop everything and come to your aid after a while. We've all been in relationships or I've been in relationships where someone expects that after 12 hours, right? And and maybe you leaned on him too much and and scared him off or to be more charitable to you, maybe he's incapable of that other side of the relationship. Maybe he's just in relationships for the, the fun and the sex and doesn't want there to be any expectations or demands made on him for, for time or attention or support, in which case you're well rid of him. So either there's a lesson you need to learn here about not overburdening a new romantic partner, not expecting too much too soon from them, and that's your closure. You need to learn that lesson. Or the lesson you need to learn is a lesson about him, that he wasn't a good candidate for a long-term romantic partner because he's incapable of offering the kind of emotional support you have a right to expect from a romantic partner. In which case you shouldn't be so sad about him exiting your life at just seven months as opposed to seven years and a kid and a dog. Absolutely. Um, And this is also someone whose longest relationship only ever was five to six months, where for me it's four years and up. So it's um, maybe perhaps it just has come down to that. I mean, I, um, I definitely learned a big lesson walking out of this relationship and, um, and what was on that? both on my end. So I, and what was that lesson? Um, as far as closure goes, just making my own closure. Uh, even if it, if it doesn't, if that one person isn't willing to give it. And then also like you're saying, just, just having better uh, ways to deal with anxiety or dealing with, um, negativity, maybe not necessarily leaning on that one person, but to lean on friends, family, Spread it a therapist and so on and so forth. Spread it exactly. Around. 
ask for love and support and help with some conscious thought to the proportionality of the ask and the, and the mutuality of the ask. Are you asking for support from people that you've given support to in the past or are giving support to right now? Are you there for people in the way you would like them to be there for you or are you just taking? And if you're just taking, that's something that with a therapist that you can work on. There's something else I bang on a lot about and I want to address this with you really quickly, which is the STR, the short-term relationship. And a short-term relationship can be good. And there's a lot of people out there who I think prefer STRs, short-term relationships, but they can't ask for that. They can't say that because we're all expected to want the long, long, long-term committed relationship. And if this guy had said to you at the beginning of the relationship, you know, he's never been in a relationship longer than three or four or five months. If he had said to you, like, I'm an STR guy, we'll have a great four or five months together, and then we'll part and hopefully be friends after. How would you have reacted? I'm really curious about that because I think a lot of STR people, people who either know that a short-term relationship is all they're ever up for or should be able to look over their romantic history and come to that realization, they can't be honest with the people that they're dating or no one will date them. Because even other people who want STRs, judging by their behavior, don't realize it, can't ask for it. And even if they could ask for it, most people want an LTR or someone open to an LTR. What if this guy had come to you and said, I want an STR? And then maybe he wouldn't have engineered this giant conflict at the end of the relationship to 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 get him out of it. And and he could have just said, oh, time's up. This is the six months uh, you know, my, this is about as far as I go. Let's be friends. Would you have gone with him for that six, seven months under those conditions, under those terms? Honestly, no, I would have preferred, I would have just swapped it at friends and mm. got to know that person as a friend. Okay. Well, good to know. I think there's a lesson there for people who are self-aware enough to know that they want <laughs> STRs, which is most people aren't going to want that. So either you have to be dishonest with people you're dating or yourself about fact that STRs are obviously what you want, or uh, you need to seek out other people who want those STRs, who are STR identified themselves. Uh, hey, thank you so much and, and, and good luck. And uh, I think that the closure has come. Agreed. Right. I, I agree with you hundred percent on this. Yes. And um, I learned a lot of lessons from this and I'm definitely going to move on. And as far as me being an LTR person, hoping that my LTR person's out there. <laughs> Good luck. I I hope so too. Thanks, Dan. Bye. Hey, Dan. 30s East Coast woman dating a Korean guy. We've been dating for about a month. Haven't had sex. That's pretty common in their culture to wait for intimacy to develop. And we were talking about sex and he said that ideally he would like to have sex, you know, maybe two to four times a week. And, you know, he's not that interested in sex though, because um, he has a lot of extreme guilt when he uh, ejaculates and he relates that to sexual assault, actually a couple of different sexual assaults as a child. And so, you know, I'm trying to think about how to work through this together. And, you know, besides encouraging him to seek some therapy, 
what are some practical tips that I can do if we do become more physically linked? You know, I was thinking mutual masturbation for a while and then kind of progressing to PIV, but any other tactics would be very welcome. Otherwise, he's very nice, very nurturing, checks all the boxes for a really good long-term relationship, but I would really appreciate your input. You can't know how sexually compatible you are with someone until you've had sex. And even then, it sometimes takes time to catch a groove or figure out where the groove is to find out what works for the two of you to to figure out your erotic script. And this guy is telling you that that's just not possible. That he, because of his culture, can't have premarital sex but fully expects and promises you that once you two are married or, or, or together – He'll want to have sex two to four times a week. That's his guesstimate, I guess. Doesn't sound like he's been in a long-term committed romantic relationship in the past. And so he's either guessing at what it is he's going to want or he's telling you what he thinks you want to hear. He's also telling you that he's a victim of sexual assault and that because of the trauma linked to that sexual assault – Whenever he ejaculates, he feels really bad. You say that you've suggested, you know, besides urging him to to, to talk to someone, to see a therapist, what else can you do? And I infer from your statement that he hasn't talked to anyone about that, that he hasn't already seen a therapist to help him process the trauma that is making a looming orgasm a terrifying prospect for him. I do know someone who suffers from that kind of trauma. You know, when I come, I feel terrible. And there's some people out there who, after they come, men and women, after they come, they have, they're they're overwhelmed by feelings they can't quite process or understand. Some people have a crying jag after their orgasm and it's tied to nothing. Sometimes it's tied to past traumas. But if he doesn't have a good understanding uh, and a handle on these big sads that overwhelm him, the surfacing of these traumas whenever he has an orgasm, well, my heart goes out for him. I feel a deep sympathy for his plight, but he's if he hasn't talked to a therapist yet, if he hasn't worked through this yet, not eradicated these feelings, but figured out how to understand them and maybe contain them, he's not in good working order. Good working order doesn't mean perfect. Nobody's perfectly healthy. We all have our own insecurities. We all have our own traumas and we repeat patterns over the course of our lives. That's what you sign up for when you're in a relationship with another human being as opposed to a toaster with a flashlight duct taped to it. That said, we have a responsibility to our partners but also to ourselves to arrive at the having of adult relationships in good enough working order to have that relationship. And I don't think as you contemplate marrying this man, you know enough about him to conclude that he's in good working order, much less to conclude that he's someone that you're going to be sexually compatible with when what he said to you is we can't have sex before we're married. By the way, when we do have sex, I'm going to be overwhelmed with the feelings of sadness, but I predict I'll want to have sex two to four times a week. Hard to reconcile all of those statements. So yeah, encourage him to see a therapist. You can keep seeing him if you'd like to keep seeing him. Make clear to him 
that you're not going to make a long-term commitment to him or anyone else that you haven't done your screw diligence about and that you don't know for sure that you have some baseline sexual compatibility, which you don't know about this guy, but you and this guy now, and you're not going to be able to determine if you can't have sex before making the commitment that he's asking you to think about making. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 34-year-old gay American man living in Europe, and I have a question about foreskin restoration. Like many American guys, I was circumcised as a baby, and I wish that I hadn't been. So I recently started using weighted metal glands rings on the shaft of my penis to help grow the foreskin back. So far, so good. I wear them comfortably all day, and I've noticed that the skin has stretched just a little to cover some of the head. Obviously, this is sort of a do-it-yourself hack, and I'm curious if you or your listeners have any advice on how to do this safely and effectively. Any success or horror stories I should know about? Also, while I'm not a card-carrying intactivist per se, I do think non-therapeutic circumcision performed on babies should be outlawed because they can't consent to getting part of their dick hacked off. Years ago, I convinced my brother not to circumcise his sons, small win, and I now live in Europe where most people are baffled by circumcision anyway. But sometimes when I raise these ethical concerns with people of Jewish or Islamic faith, I'm accused of being anti-Semitic or Islamophobic. What do you think, Dan? How can I raise these ethical concerns with people of faith? Are there branches of these religions that argue against it? Foreskin restoration, definitely a thing. If they can rebuild Dresden, if they can restore Dresden, your foreskin can be restored. It can be rebuilt. What can't be rebuilt are the nerve endings that were lost when you were circumcised. But there are rings that you can wear. There are ways to stretch the skin that is still on your penis to recreate uh, a foreskin-like appendage. There are also surgeries that men have gotten to transplant skin from another part of the body, sensitive thin skin from another part of the body, to rebuild and recreate the foreskin. What can't be recreated again are the nerve endings. Some men who've undergone foreskin restoration find that it does increase sensitivity of the glands of the head of the penis because it is protected, because it's under a foreskin when it's not being used. And some men find that beneficial, makes it more sensitive. There are some men out there who have problems with premature ejaculation. I have never seen a study that found any correlation between uncircumcised guys and premature ejaculation. If getting circumcised made the head of your penis less sensitive and made you last longer at this point, because there's been so many studies of penises over the last hundred years, we would have seen at least some correlation there between circumcision and not being a premature ejaculator and between being uncircumcised and being a premature ejaculator. There is no correlation. I don't think there's any relationship there. The increased sensitivity may be beneficial. You may enjoy it more or it may not. Depends on how you feel about zingy glands of the penis. So this is definitely a thing. People have definitely done it. If there's anybody out there listening who has undergone successfully foreskin restoration through to completion and you've got a brand spanking new foreskin that you're happy with and you want to call in and share, please do. Or if you got one and you're unhappy with it and had to get it cut off again, please call in and share. As for your Jewish and Muslim friends, leave them the fuck alone. Stay the fuck out of it. It is none of your business. Now, I am against circumcision myself, personally. I would not and did not have a child of my own circumcised. I have lots of Jewish friends. I do not know a Jewish parent 
of a boy who has not thought about this and struggled with it. I don't know a lot of Orthodox Jews. I know mostly secular, liberal, and Reformed Jews. But every Jewish parent, friend of mine that I've ever spoken to, when they brought it up, I didn't bring up their newborn infant's penis when they brought it up because sometimes people confide in me because what I do for a living. They've all given it a lot of thought and have struggled with it and arrived at an informed choice where they've confronted the moral dimensions of, of what they're doing to, to honor their culture, to honor their history, to honor their parents or not or whatever. Trust your Jewish and your Muslim friends are thinking about it and stay the fuck out of it. And yeah, in a lot of online organized anti-circumcision circles, you will find some raving anti-Semites. You don't have to flip over many rocks in the intactivist community before you find some anti-Semitism being sort of laundered through the anti-circumcision movement, which in theory I support. I don't believe that people should have – boys should have their foreskins removed in infancy. If an adult decides they want to have their foreskin removed, all right. They can make an informed decision about their own body. All that said, yeah. It's none of your business, your dick, your foreskin, the foreskins of any children that you might have at some point, your business, your Muslim friends, your Jewish friends, not your fucking business. And there are some people in the anti-circumcision world who will compare routine male infant circumcision to female genital mutilation, and they're not analogous. FGM, female genital mutilation, is to have the glands of the clitoris removed cut off, usually without anesthesia, usually when the child is no longer an infant, that would be comparable to snipping off the head of the penis, not cutting back the foreskin, but hacking off the head. They are not comparable procedures. And equating one with the other is an insult to women who've undergone, suffered from, and are still reeling from the impact of FGM. And it's an insult to parents who, for whatever reason, made the choice for their male infant to get them circumcised, which is, again, a choice that I wouldn't make. And if my friend uh, – and here in America, it's not just Jewish and Muslim friends who might be thinking about it. If my friend asked for my opinion and brought me into that conversation, I would share with them how I feel. I would make the argument. But if they didn't, I would mind my own fucking business, which is what I'm going to recommend that you do. Enjoy your foreskin as it grows, as you restore it, but don't involve yourself in anyone else's foreskin unless that adult man has invited you to involve yourself with his foreskin. Hi, Dan. Nancy in the tech side at Risk Youth. I'm lucky enough to have gotten my second COVID vaccine. I'm a teacher teaching in person, so I, you know, sort of earned it, I guess. I'm also single and have not met up with any of my FWBs in a fucking year. Well, I mean, not a fucking year, the opposite. You know what I'm saying? I know I have to wait two weeks after the second shot for full immunity to, to, to set in. But my question is, what then? Like, what are the rules? for hooking up, especially considering they'll still be in front of people, masked, but in front of people on a daily basis. Joining me by phone to help tackle this question, Dr. Stacey DeLynn, MD, is a board-certified physician whose specialty and area of practice is gynecology and family planning. As associate medical director for clinics, she has worked extensively to follow all of the emerging evidence on COVID-19, and she runs a terrifically informative Instagram account where she shares the best and current information about 
COVID-19. You can find that at Stacy Delin underscore MD. All right, Stacy, Dr. Delin, how are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for that nice introduction. Uh, you're welcome, and, and thank you. And I've I've found your Instagram account to be very helpful. I'm a natural catastrophizer, and your Instagram account <laughs> and the information that you share there uh, has helped me calm down a few times. So I, I wanted to have you on the show, and I wanted to thank you. Awesome. I'm, I'm glad you follow. You know, it sort of came just out of um, my friends asking me a ton of questions and people being really not that informed. And I think with the last administration, there was such a, a lack of clear public health messaging. And as the science emerged, I've just been trying to get everyone as informed as possible and trying to do it in a really accessible way. So I'm glad that you've enjoyed reading and watching. And now I want to ask if you have any vaccine you could spare for me. Got any? Any in the freezer that's going to go <laughs> I off? I swear if I had some, I would share it with you. But yeah, it's, a, it's hard to come by these days, but hopefully soon. Our caller, he's an educator. He got the shot and he wants to know post-vaccination what are the rules for hooking up? What can he do now? He's been a really good soldier and hasn't had any intimate contact with anybody for a year teaching in-person classes. So the risks he yeah. takes, he's imposing on his students and other people that he's interacting with in his school. But now that he's vaccinated, what is he allowed? What can he do? Right. So my condolences to him first for his celibate year, but I do want to say that while I'm sure it wasn't easy being so isolated, it's really incredible that he sacrificed so much personal happiness in order to keep himself and others safe and healthy. And based on that, I really want to give him good news, which I can't do quite yet, but this isn't exactly bad news. This is just like asking him to hang in for a little while longer. Um, we, we do have really great news about the vaccine so far. So congratulations to him on getting vaccinated, especially being in a high risk job. Um, now that he's fully vaccinated, he's pretty much guaranteed not to end up in the hospital or end up dead from a COVID infection, which is just incredible. The thing we don't know though, is whether or not vaccinated people are, are going to be able to spread the virus to others who aren't yet vaccinated. We do have some really good early data that shows that those who are vaccinated have about a fourfold reduction in viral spread. So we know that the lower the viral load a person carries, the less likelihood of them being able to transmit to others. So someone who's been vaccinated can still be infected by COVID. They're not going to be sickened by it, but they can still be infected and shedding the virus and potentially infect others who are not vaccinated and might get very sick. Correct. We, we do What the early data is showing us so far that if they can infect others, that the that lower viral load will mean that it will also cause less severe symptoms than others, right? So if you did carry virus and you did spread it and did infect someone else, it's still good news because they would be less likely to get a severe case of COVID. But that said, there's documented cases of people with mild cases of COVID getting those like those long haul symptoms that you've probably read about, like mm -hmm. heart damage, lung scarring, neurologic symptoms. And so based on what we don't know yet, we still need to take precautions. And like, just to speak personally, I'm very privileged to be fully vaccinated, but the other members of my household aren't. So based on this lack of knowledge, I'm still continuing to be worried that I could bring virus home to them. So I'm still taking really strict precautions. But what I want to reassure the caller and everyone else who's, um, you know, uh, grappling with this and hoping that when they get the vaccine, that they can get out there as quickly as possible I think in the next few months that we're going to get the confirmatory data with a clear answer to how much vaccinated people can spread the virus. But whatever way the results go, 
The other thing that we can expect to happen in the next few months is that the vaccine effort in the country is really ramping up. And I think that his friends with benefits are pretty likely to be vaccinated soon also. And so that's where the good news comes in that very small gatherings of people who are fully vaccinated are likely to be incredibly low risk and he can feel safe about seeing those partners then. So, 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 so once his fuck buddies are vaccinated, he can get together with his fuck buddies who are vaccinated without putting other people who might not be vaccinated in his school at significant risk. Exactly. And you get to stay alive now because you're vaccinated and then you're going to be able to hang with other vaccinated people soon. So you just need to hang in there a little while longer. You know, I think it's really hard for for folks who've done everything right, who've been celibate for a year, who've only allowed themselves, uh, you know, online dating or online sex to open a newspaper to look out the window and see so many other people behaving so recklessly and feeling like they aren't idiots or, or fools, you know, when you see everybody else not, or you see a significant number of other people taking irrational risks when you're being hyper conscientious and hyper safe, how do you sit with that feeling and that resentment without then acting out, without on impulse taking risks yourself? Yeah, I know that that this year has been incredibly difficult and really isolating and that it can make you sometimes feel like you're the weird or the overly cautious one by taking precautions when you see others around you not doing it. But we just cleared half a million deaths from coronavirus in this country And honestly, no one should be taking this lightly and uh, no one should feel like they're the odd man out for taking steps to keep themselves, um, his students, uh, his family, his community safe. And so, um, you know, I, I, I understand the feeling. I know we're all there, but the the stakes are incredibly high. The, The stakes and the body count, both incredibly high. We are seeing as more and more people get vaccinated, reported daily cases really plummeting and plummeting right. faster than predicted, which is not a sign that we can throw all precautions to the wind right now. We have to like stick with it and yeah. get more and more people vaccinated, bring those reported daily cases of you know daily infections that can be inferred from those reported daily cases down mm-hmm. below replication levels, down below 1% Absolutely. infected for each person infected. And then we can have our bars back and our movie theaters back and our sex clubs back and our fuck buddies back. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and the the message I try to get to people, you know, with this vaccine is for a long time, things, you know, felt really hopeless, but we have a clear hope and the goal line is very close and we're getting there with decreasing cases and we're getting there with vaccination. Um, But also the steps we take now are enormously important when it comes to the issue of variants, which we see circulating. And the more the more cases that circulate, the more infections that rise, the more variants we'll see. The more in these this few months that we can do to stay isolated, to get as many people vaccinated without causing the virus to spread further, you know, the quicker we're going to be towards getting back to our, our normal way of life and the things that we that we love and enjoy. Hi, Dan. I'm a 35-year-old heterosexual woman living in the Midwest with an eight-month-old son. My husband and I send our son to daycare three days a week, and my husband's mom and sister each come to our house once a week to watch him on the other days. They're effectively our COVID pod. It's been a really long year of navigating COVID discussions with them, and my husband and I always de facto end up being the people with the power making decisions for everyone else. 
We're definitely the most nervous about exposure, and it feels like we're constantly asking them to scale back social interactions in order to be able to come babysit, which we totally recognize is a huge favor they're doing for us. We always offer them an out if they choose to do something we don't feel comfortable with, but most of the time they prioritize him over other social options. My sister-in-law is polyamorous and has been in a functionally monogamous relationship that just ended. She's now dating other people and just told us that she made out with someone on a second date who immediately, who she immediately decided she wasn't interested in. She told us right away she offered to wear a mask during her next babysitting gig, but my husband and I don't feel comfortable enough to have her come, so we're skipping this week, and it totally feels like we're putting her in a, time, in a timeout. I've heard you talk about this issue before, that we don't have any right to control someone else's behavior during COVID, but we do have the right to control our interactions with other people which seems like what we're doing. That said, it feels really shitty to hold all the power. And it also feels like we're inherently telling her that she can't be polyamorous during this time. I've asked her if it would be possible to go on outside dates. And then if she decided that someone was worth exposing herself to, she and that other person could get tested and decide to temporarily commit to each other. This probably isn't going to work because the people she meets also have other partners and don't intend to be monogamous in any way. It's also not at all what she wants. What can we do to get everyone's needs met here? I don't want her to feel stifled in her dating life, but also can't really change my opinion about her risk and exposure. I want her to be able to date the people she wants to date, but unfortunately her actions directly impact our life and my son's life in this weird and totally abnormal way. Uh, you know, I think that everyone has had to have these really uncomfortable and difficult conversations, which lead to a ton of strife with our friends and our family members about what your pod is and what level of safety precautions that you're comfortable with. I personally work in the field of family planning and sexual health. And one thing that I typically counsel my patients on is getting comfortable with discussions about safe sex with your partners. And to be honest, these conversations, I think, um, apply incredibly well to this pod conversation during the pandemic. I totally understand the unease that the caller has about not wanting to feel like she's judging or trying to control her sister's life. But in the same way in which you would want to know who your partner is having sex with before you made an informed decision about like not using a condom, COVID-19 is also an infectious disease. And you have every right to know who the people who enter your home are also interacting with so that you can make informed decisions to keep your family safe. And that said, just to like place a caveat, I don't think the caller has any right to tell her sister who she can date or how she can live her life. But from the call, it seems like they're already in a good place of pretty open and healthy communication about what her sister's interactions are and what the caller feels comfortable with. So I guess I might suggest that rather than grilling her sister about specifics on her dating life, she might just let her know the exact boundaries that they feel comfortable with as parents. So something like, we're only comfortable with you watching the baby if you've been quarantined for the last 10 days. If you've seen anybody else, that person would also have to not be seeing anyone else. So then it's not necessarily a judgment on who she sees, but just a clear personal set of boundaries. I think she needs to ask her sister what her sister wants more. Would you like to continue providing me with free childcare or would you like to go find a, a new sexual and romantic partner? And then her sister gets to make a choice there. Exactly. And it might hurt the caller's feelings if what the sister chooses is to no longer be a source of childcare. You know, it could, I hope that doesn't hurt the caller's feelings too much if her sister prioritizes her own sex and romantic life, hopefully in a safe way as possible. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. Over 
the free labor she's been providing you for a year. And I think that you should be very grateful for caller, but not necessarily expect forever. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and again, it seems like the, the caller also feels like she's a jerk in regulating her, you know, her sister's behavior. And I think that, as we mentioned with the last caller, the stakes are very high here and setting clear boundaries is not in any, in any way a reason to feel guilty and also just leaves the decision in her sister's hand rather than picking on or judging her sister, just saying like, these are our boundaries. Are you able to meet them? Great. If not, no big deal. And I think that we've all had to get more comfortable with these conversations as time has passed in the pandemic. And what about the, the compromise the caller suggests that her sister is still allowed to babysit, still allowed to provide her with free childcare, but she has to wear Mm -hmm. a mask the whole time. You don't hear a lot about small children getting COVID or dying of COVID, although some small children have contracted COVID-19 and died of the infection, but it's very rare. Is that, safe enough? Even if her sister has made out with a man she's never going to see again, is it safe enough for her to care for this infant while wearing a mask? Or is that, in your opinion, too risky? So we definitely know that kids get COVID less, uh, including infants, but we do see a number of hospitalizations uh, for uh, infants. We know that kids don't spread the Uh, virus very well. We do know that as they get older, older than 10, they spread the virus more. Adolescents uh, spread the virus as much as adults do. When it comes to that infancy age that she mentioned, I think she said she had an eight-month-old, you know, they have seen much lower risk and they don't understand if it's because of the immune system, but they also don't know if it's because infants are protected. Um, And so, you know, typically infants aren't out in the world socializing and their parents are keeping them safe. So that might also be the reason it's not well understood. And pediatricians really recommend to continue to take precautions around kids and infants without question. Um, In all situations, mask wearing helps, especially for indoor gatherings. Um, I would be almost less worried about the transmission from the sister to the baby, but more that uh, who's going to be spending time in your house. What's the handoff for the baby, right? Is the sister coming over, spending time? You know, there's certainly going to be time between the parents indoors. Those are all big places for interaction. So it's about sort of the entire interaction and people within the home. Even that's another piece to consider beyond caring for the baby. All right. So before I let you go, as a sex educator, MD, doctor out there doing the work, where do you come down on glory holes? did not anticipate this question. You know, <laughs> it's just that I just want to say, I want to remind everybody that at the very beginning of the pandemic in early March, I predicted that this would be the golden age of glory holes, potentially <laughs> a, a renewed golden age for glory holes because, you know, a glory hole is a hole carved in a wall and you pop your genitals, your male genitals through that hole and somebody on the other side of that wall blows you basically that's a glory yeah. hole i am familiar with the concept but it's not ready for the question so let me think about it <laughs> so, so i got a, i got a question from a reader who you know did the right thing hasn't had any sexual contact he's in his mid-50s no sexual mm-hmm. contact for the last year has been vaccinated is fully vaccinated now and all he mm-hmm. wants to do is suck mm-hmm. a dick and I, well, I guess I would ask if the person on the other side of the wall was also vaccinated. We do know that in indoor gatherings, so assuming that this said glory hole is within a enclosed bathroom, any prolonged amount of time with, you know, uh, in indoor spaces, there is an increased risk of transmission of COVID, even if there is a wall between the two people. So 
Um, I'm not sure if he would be comfortable bringing it to sort of a more a, a well-ventilated area, <laughs> as well as uh, being able to communicate with the person on the other side of the wall about their vaccination status. So an outdoor glory hole, a, a partition in a park, uh, the guy you're blowing needs to be masked up or vaccinated yep. themselves. No kissing, Absolutely. no chit-chatting, and you can't drive there together in the same car. <laughs> doesn't sound very fun, but that's all I have for you. (laughs) (laughs) Different things are fun to different people in different ways. Who knows? Yeah. (laughs) Dr. Stacey DeLynn, board-certified physician, specialist in gynecology, family planning, associate medical director of her clinic, and she has a terrific Instagram account at Stacey DeLynn underscore MD, where she imparts a lot of really important and updated information about COVID-19 and about the precautions we all still need to be taking Dr. Dillon, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. It was a blast chatting with you. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, Dan, late 20s gay here on the East Coast. My question for you is about the dating mindset. I know that I've pretty much always wanted a serious long-term partner, and yet that just hasn't happened for me in the 11 years I've been out. Uh, Why? I think that the societal pressure and fantasy of a forever monogamous soulmate that you talk about doesn't help. Um, But I do know I have lots of issues stemming from my childhood that I've explored in therapy. My parents' divorce and their preceding abusive relationships. Also, maybe the desire desires never to be fulfilled ideas. So being drawn to quote unquote safer guys with whom I don't have a real connection. And then of course, proceeding to run away from those that show a lot of interest for me uh, in me at the get-go. So there's definitely a longing for control here and maybe wanting to know or protect myself from how it will end. I've grown a lot and yet still can't get over this three-month hump after two and a half months of a finally promising, I think, smoothly paced, sexual, romantic, emotional connection, a recent dude dumped me a week after dazzling me on my birthday. Needless to say, confusing and disappointing, especially after we'd both expressed a desire for something serious at the beginning. Several gay couples I know began dating casually with no intention of anything serious, but after a while realized there was something there. Is that the better route to take? It feels like the that I would be going for something that I don't want. Dating, even hooking up, has always been fraught for me. I just would love to better understand and manage my anxiety in this arena. To be clear, when I talk about forever monogamous soulmates, I'm debunking the myth of the existence of a forever monogamous soulmate. There is no the one. I got what you meant, but just to be, I wanted that to be clear. I wanted to tag that base. I don't think this is an either or. I don't think you have to choose between seeking out guys who are open to dating and commitment and dating those guys with an eye on a potential future commitment and hooking up with guys that interest you sexually. And then if the sex is good and the sex is the the only expectation to continue to hook up with that guy. And then if you catch feelings for each other, well, Yahtzee. Those are the ways that gay men enter into relationships. Some gay men are out there dating and serious about seeking a commitment, find somebody who feels the same way, and they wind up in a committed long-term relationship. Some guys are just out there fucking around and then 
fuck around and find out they're in a long-term committed relationship. And every once in a while, one of the guys who's out there dating and looking for commitment will go slumming and just fuck around and then keep fucking around with that person they were fucking around with and then realize, oh my God, they found that long-term commitment with someone that they weren't necessarily looking for it from. And every once in a while, someone who's only interested in sex winds up in bed with somebody who's looking for commitment and they realize that that's what they want with that person too. So give yourself a break. You're just 30 years old. You had a lot to deal with in your 20s. You got therapy. You got yourself into good working order. I'm hitting all the buzz phrases today. You got yourself into good working order. And now you're ready to date. It isn't uncommon for gay men uh, who often didn't have the opportunity to get out there and date when they were young and make the mistakes their peers made at 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, have to make all those mistakes at 22, 23, 24, 25, 26. And by the time that gay guy knows himself and knows what he wants and has enough experience to know what he wants, he's 30 and he tells himself, oh, it's too late for me. No, 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 Calm the fuck down. It is not too late for you. Hey, I didn't meet Terry until I was 30. You could meet someone you wind up for, for good or ill in a long-term committed romantic relationship at your advanced age. You ain't dead. You're just 30. You're 30 and ready. And who knows? Maybe the guy who dazzled you on your birthday panicked, got cold feet, and in six months you two are going to reconnect and wind up together. That is a thing that also happens. In the meantime, don't wait around for that. In the meantime... Fuck around with the guys you're interested in fucking around with. Be open to a relationship with one of those guys. Seek out guys who are seeking commitment, and obviously you will be open to a relationship with one of those guys too. And then a guy that you can be in a relationship will enter your life. How long that relationship lasts? Well, you never know. Good short-term relationships can be good relationships. And a long-term relationship is just a really good short-term relationship that went on and on and on. I think it helps. I'm going to hit every buzz phrase. I think it helps to remind yourself that every relationship you're ever going to be in is going to end until one doesn't or until you do. And that always helped me be zen about relationships ending when they needed to end or I needed to end them or the other person felt it needed to end. Everything ends. All relationships end. Some of them end and both people get out of them alive. Some of them end and one person is putting the other person in an urn. <laughs> I hate to end on that dark note, but good luck. Play every card. Hey, Dan. So can you tell me how to actually be friends with your ex? My boyfriend of four years and I broke up two months ago and it was very non-dramatic. Our relationship had just kind of turned into a friendship naturally. So we decided to make it official or whatever, that we were just friends and not in a relationship anymore to break up, move on. Um, however, we started seeing each other as friends right away. So there was not, no time apart. And we saw each other still frequently, but I felt like I had definitely um, closed that chapter so I have a, a girlfriend who I thought might be a really good match for him. And because of the bro code or sis code or whatever, I thought I should tell her that it would be okay for me if she ever felt like 
seeing if they would be a good match. And now they actually did start dating and it is really weird for me. It has brought up so many emotions and I don't know if it is because it's only been two months and I for sure would not be ready to start anything new yet. And it makes me feel like it hurts that he was able to move on so quickly and it feels like our relationship wasn't as important to him as it was to me. And I don't know if I'm overreacting or how I should feel about this or how do I get over this. Now I've just told them both um, that I need some time to like process, but they're definitely doing the right thing. And it's just me who needs to get over it. So what do you think? What do I do? I really love you. I don't know you. You just called. First time I've ever heard your voice, but I'm totally in love with you. Because you saw that your ex, who you didn't break up with in anger, the relationship had ended and you just acknowledged that it was over without a lot of pain or rancor, without engineering a conflict to give you an excuse to end the relationship. You and your ex just were adults and acknowledged what you both knew to be true and that you both knew to be sad, which was that it had already ended. And then in the wake of that, you knew your friend and you knew your ex and you thought they might make a good pair and they might be into each other and you set them up and you were right that they would hit it off and you gave them your blessing and now they hit it off and you're having feelings. I think you made a mistake, even when it ends without a lot of rancor, even when it ends without somebody engineering a conflict that gives them an excuse to end the relationship, even when it ends the way your relationship ended. I think it's a good idea to take some time away. And now you're doing that. I think you should have perhaps done that sooner and you would have been, even if you'd set up your ex and your friend the way that you did, you wouldn't have been exposed to them and you wouldn't have witnessed their new happiness. And there's always grief when a relationship ends. Even when a relationship ends amicably, there is grief. And you didn't have the time or space to really grieve the end of this relationship and what that meant to you. And witnessing you know, your ex and their process around grieving the end of the relationship – isn't always wise, even if you're happy for the relationship to end, even if you're happy for your ex to have found new love. Very few people ending a relationship, exiting a relationship, grieve the end of the relationship on the exact same timeline as their ex does. And seeing your ex move on more quickly can make you feel everything that you're feeling. Well, the way you control for that is not seeing your ex move on more quickly by not seeing your ex. So now, don't see your ex for a while. Tell them that, of course, you're happy for them. It was your idea to set them up and you're glad that you were right and you're glad for them, but you're having a sad right now for yourself and they need to give you some time and some space. And everyone involved here sounds so emotionally mature, such high emotional IQs that I do not doubt that your ex and your friend won't be able to hear that and won't be able to give you the space that you need without anger or bitterness or guilting you or shaming you. Take the time and space that you need and remind yourself why the relationship with your ex ended. 
you said at the start of your call that there wasn't a lot of anger, there wasn't a lot of sadness, and it was really about the mutual acknowledgement of what you both knew to be true in your hearts was that the relationship had already ended. It could be that he came to that realization a little sooner than you did, and he was, when you both acknowledged that the relationship was over, a little further along in the grieving process for the end of the relationship than you were when the relationship ended. And so rather than looking at how quickly he moved on and feeling like he didn't value the relationship, that he got over it too quickly, look at how quickly he moved on and then tell yourself, I don't want to look at that right now. I don't need to look at that right now. And it doesn't tell me anything about how much he loved me or how much he valued the time he had with me that he was further along in the grieving process or that his grieving process generally when a relationship ends maybe moves on a faster track than mine does. The important takeaway here, though, is to take some time away from your ex. Maybe you should have done that when the relationship first ended and not pivoted to friends or the attempt to be friends so quickly, but definitely take it now. Wish them well. Tell them they'll hear from you when you're in a better place. Maybe when you're seeing somebody else and you can go on a nice high emotional IQ double date together. Hey, Dan. So a friend of ours is having a gender reveal party. For many reasons, we kind of find this problematic and we tried to gently share these views with her, but it didn't really resonate. So she insists on going forward with the gender reveal party. So a couple questions. First, how do we air quotes attend the party? This is virtual without compromising our beliefs around the subject. What do we do about gifts? This is also you know, on top of having a baby shower. So it's a pandemic. So why it just feels really wrong and inappropriate at this time. And I think ideally we would love to get to a point where we could, yeah, educate her in everything around this, how problematic these parties are and that they just perpetuate some really dangerous sexual norms. And at the end of the day, perpetuate the patriarchy. Or maybe we should just shut up and sit back. I don't know. I would love your thoughts. It's an invitation, not a summons. You are not required to show up at this party. And you've already said something to your friend about how fucked up you think gender reveal parties are. I would add how dangerous they are. We've had another death. A guy, BBC reports, a father-to-be from New York State has died after a device he was building for his child's gender reveal party exploded, according to police. A device? No, he was building a bomb. Another idiot building a bomb for a gender reveal party. There have been other deaths. Other people have died at gender reveal parties because people feel, I don't know, obligated. There's some sort of arms race for the bigger, better, pinker, blue explosion and people are literally dying. We are going to go from gender reveal parties to orphan reveal parties at this rate. But this is a virtual one. This is a Zoom gender reveal party. You will not die. There's no risk of shrapnel taking out grandma as happened at a different gender reveal party where they blew up a bomb or dying from a cannon exploding, which happened at another gender reveal party. Oh my God, you're in no 
danger. You are also not, if it violates your sincerely held anti-patriarchal beliefs, you are not obligated to show up. But when it comes to talking to your friend about how damaging you feel a gender reveal party is, you've already done that work. You've already told your friend you think this is fucked up. Don't go. Don't show. Don't sit there on Zoom. Don't be one of the tiles with a scowl on your face attending this party virtually because you feel obligated to just because you were invited. You're not obligated to attend. Yeah, don't go to the big penis or vag rollout that your friends are hosting for their their genital reveal party for their child. You're not obligated to show up. not obligated to send a gift. And please, people, if anybody listening to my show is so stupid as to be hosting a gender reveal party for themselves, no explosives, no bombs. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read some of your tweets. Just Shannon tweets, a caller on this week's Savage Lovecast asked how to tell her FWB, hey, buddy, this isn't all about you, and I'm kind of sick of the incessant talking about you. And I'm like, say that. (laughs) Hi, Shannon. I am like, say that all the time, too. And how many times have you, listeners, heard me tell a caller, just play the podcast for your partner and make them listen? Because that thing you don't know how to say, you just said it. And perfectly. Mariana Claire tweets, I should have a rule that I only date Magnum subscribers of Dan Savage's Savage Lovecast. I support that rule. I think it's a good rule, an excellent rule. Though no one I'm in a relationship with is a Magnum subscriber, so I'm going to have to sit with that contradiction for a minute. And finally, Potter Chick tweets, Hey, Twitter friends, I need suggestions. I love the Savage Lovecast and the Dear Prudence podcast. Also, Hidden Brain the Moth, This American Life. But I listen to podcasts whenever I'm in the studio and I need more ideas. I have some ideas. Some of my current favorites. Risk, the Sex and Psychology podcast with Dr. Justin Lee Miller, the Bulwark podcast, the Venus Cuckoldress podcast, Blocked and Reported, We Were Christian Kids, Noble Blood, Fall of Civilizations, the Unspeakable podcast, and The Gist with Mike Pesca, which is currently on hiatus for bullshit reasons. Blocked and Reported did an excellent episode this week about the Pesca drama at Slate. And here's hoping Mike and the gist are back up and on again soon. All right. Now your response calls. Hey, Dan. I'm probably one of many uh, registered massage therapists calling about uh, your most recent episode where you recommended a massage therapist to the woman whose brother had muscular dystrophy. And uh, while I am so in favor of her finding a body worker, a masseuse, a masseur, someone who does that kind of work, please don't refer people to massage therapists for sex work. We're healthcare professionals and it's been, you know, such a struggle for the profession over the years because of the, you know, it being misconstrued as sex work. And while I'm super pro sex work and I think it's amazing, it's important that massage therapists not be seen as sex work. Hey Dan, I'm calling about the woman in the most recent episode who called in because she and her wife were trying to figure out how to end a friendship with a new couple they've just met when they read online that the husband was accused of molesting one of his children. And I totally understand their concern, but I also want to point out that accused is not convicted. I mean, you can be, you can accuse somebody of anything. So if you really want to be friends with them, I would talk it over with them. It might be that, you know, it was a vindictive ex or who knows what, there may be an explanation and perhaps it's not what you think it is. Of course it might be. 
that's going to be up to your judgment. But I just wanted to raise the possibility that accused is not the same as convicted. This is a response about a man whose girlfriend is considering becoming a sugar baby. This is maybe a cliche suggestion, but I wonder if he considered becoming sugar baby himself as well. And like that, not only that their problem would vanish, but they would also double their income. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or comment, and then email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. This is your final weekend to catch my Dirty Little Film Festival hump. I will be hosting a special closing night viewing party on March 6th, so come watch with me and other hump fans. Whether you've already seen this hump or any other hump, if this is your first time humping, we can all watch together and enjoy what I think is one of the most diverse and entertaining humps we've ever had. Go to humpfilmfest.com to grab your tickets. Speaking of tickets, don't forget Nancy and I are hosting another Savage Love live stream on March 13th with our special guest, writer, and pro-dom and frequent Savage Love cast guest going back to the very start, Mistress Matisse. Send your SM questions in ahead of time to livestream at savagelovecast.com or just come to the party, ask your questions in the chat room. I'll be answering as many as I can. Go to savagelovecast.com slash events to get those tickets. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Stacy DeLynn on Instagram at StacyDeLynn underscore MD. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for telling me.